I invite you to turn your copies to God's holy and inspired word this morning to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth during Advent this season, this year, we will be looking at this little Old Testament book whose purpose is to show us both the need and the provision of God for the first advent of Jesus Christ. A lot of times uh, we don't always appreciate genealogies in the Bible. And I bet I won't do a show of hands. But if you've ever been doing your reading the Bible through a year, has anybody ever skipped a genealogy? Uh huh. That's between you and the Lord. But I remember um, always being struck. Why does the book of Ruth end with a genealogy? Because the genealogy is the point of the book. And so we will look at some of the other themes that are that are here in this book of Ruth. It's often described as the greatest love story. And different things like that, and I'm, and I'm, it, the love story is, it is, it is, a, it is good, it is amazing, but that is serving a greater purpose. And the issue is that God is reminding His people the King is coming. The book, of, as we look at the book of Ruth, that's going to be our theme: the the King is coming this morning. As we look at chapter 1, we will look at that theme, but specifically through the need that there is. So the title this morning is Ruth, a king is needed, and he is coming. As I begin to read from verse 1, I am going to insert, in the middle of verse 1, I'm going to insert the last verse of the book of Judges. So don't let that throw you. In the days when the judges ruled, days when there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, in those days there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her, own, her, to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with um, the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. 
Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more, also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has test, testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the Harley, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amimadab, Amimadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the revelation not only of your purposes, but the, the various ways and the subtle ways that you oversee your purposes. You make promises and you fulfill them. You guide all things in order that your word may be true. You guide all things in order that your purposes may be protected and fulfilled. And so help us as your people as we once again find ourselves at the crossroads of trust, at the crossroads of hope to indeed fill our hearts and minds with the hope that you have given us in Christ and that greater hope to which you are calling us that we may serve as manifestations of hope within this world. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Last week, the Lord gave us quite a blessing in having the Andres with us. And Daniel got to open the word for us here. I hope that that was a good time for you as a congregation to see how God has been maturing Daniel as a man of God and how he has been mature, is maturing in his handling of the, of the word, his understanding of the word, and especially as I enjoyed the application of God's word to us last week. Throughout the sermon, I was having a hard time not laughing the whole time because the themes he kept hitting on from Matthew 24 were the themes that I wanted to set you up for in the book of Ruth. And we didn't go over this together, so I'm not, we, I didn't you know, do something behind the scenes to set you up. But it was, it was so amazing to hear um, what he and Jenna have been experiencing as those who have been serving in another country, serving in a difficult situation, and yet, as they have returned to America multiple times through the years, one of the things that Daniel noted that that they have seen and that they have experienced on their return trips to America is just how much uh, American Christians seem to be growing fearful. As things have been become more difficult, as things are definitely more challenging, as, as we have definitely entered into a post-Christian era within this culture and within our country, they have noted, as those who have been away and come back every now and then, that on their return trips, things have changed here among the Christians. He reminded us that, yes, there are these are urgent times. He reminded us, yes, these are trying times. But in the urgent and trying times, hope awaits. And are we going to be driven by our observations and experiences of the urgency? Are we going to be driven by by our observations and experiences of the growing lawlessness? Or are we going to respond to the urgency, to the developing lawlessness? Are we going to respond with the hope of Jesus Christ? What are we fixed on? Earthly circumstances or heavenly persons and purposes? This is the challenge that exists for the nation of Israel living at the time of the judges. They have come into the promised land. God fought before them. He gave them what he promised them. They have entered the promised land. They have taken up dwelling within the promised land. And and God has assured them of his covenant promises and purposes, which he has been summed up in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. If you follow me, if you love me, if you trust me, if you live according to what I have revealed, which does not mean perfection, by the way, because part of what he revealed is the mechanisms for forgiveness 
and the need for ongoing repentance. But God says, if, if you will love me, then I will bless you. If you turn away from me to the false gods of the nations around you, then I'm going to do some things to get your attention to bring you back. Deuteronomy 27 and 28. You love me, I will bless. If you commit idolatry and you leave me, you will get curse. These are not eternal things that God is talking about in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. He is not saying if they perfectly obey him that they will be blessed with salvation. What he's saying is if you love me and you you live in repentance and faith before me, then what will happen is I will make sure you have peace. I will make sure that the, the harvest is plentiful. I will make sure that the wombs are bearing fruit. I will make sure that you are not being overrun by your enemies. I will make sure, I will make sure, I will make sure. And it's all these blessings after blessing after blessing. But if you don't, then like a loving father, I'm going to chastise you. I will let your enemies have victory over you for a time. I, I will cause the wounds to dry up. I will not allow the, the land to be bountiful with harvest. And what we find in Ruth 1 is that this narrative unfolding before us is happening in the time of judges. And what we know about the times of judges is that there was no king yet in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The result of which there were some Israelites that were living in repentance and faith, and there were some who were not. And overwhelmingly, there is this cycle seven times throughout the book of Judges where the, the majority of the nation is, is not following Yahweh. They are giving their hearts to false gods and they are living more like the nations instead of according to what God has revealed in his law. And as a result, he does what he promised he would do. And he brings chastisement. And, but then he will also bring a, you know, a judge that will serve as a, a type of sa- a savior that will lead them out of that judgment when they repent and bring them back into a time of blessing. But this is what's going on in Judges. It's just cycle after cycle after cycle. And in Deuteronomy 17, God had already promised, here's what you're going to need and here's what you are going to do in the future. You will set a king over yourself. Now, he has to be the one that I pick. He has to be an Israelite. He can't be a foreigner. And his role is he is to have a personal copy of Torah. And he is to keep that copy of Torah with him. He is to read it. He is to meditate on it. He is to know it. And he is to embrace it. He is to embody it. And he is to extend that to the rest of the covenant people. And if he is a bad king where his heart is going after earthly goods, and if his heart is distracted because of many wives or, or because of going, out, going after accumulating wealth, 
the result is going to be not only will he be messing up, but it's going to create problems for the nation. But as he follows the Torah and as he embodies that repentance and faith that is needed and he keeps pointing the nation of Israel to what God has revealed, that will help to to shepherd the people into blessing. The role of king in Israel was extremely important. And we can see this in the history of Israel. We can see this in the contrast between the first two kings. One king that was chosen by the people because he was big and looked strong and had all these earthly things that attracted them to him. And the other, whom we are told, was a man after God's own heart. By the way, what that means is, as Deuteronomy 17 says, it's the one that God picks. That's what that phrase means. David is the one that God wanted for king. He didn't have what seemed to be the externals that you would look for in a king. He wasn't tall and handsome and all those kinds of things and charismatic. He, he, he just wasn't. But he was the one God had chosen. And, and between those two kings, you can see what happens when, when the king gets away from the word of God and, and the problems that brings on himself. And, and through that, the problems that come on to the nation of Israel. Whereas with David, you can see that as he wrestled and struggled with his sin, not living a perfect life of sanctification, but certainly living a life of repentance and faith. And as he wrestled and as he struggled with these things, the nation was either chastised or blessed according to to how he was doing. The role of king is extremely important. And in the book of Ruth, what we are told right up front is that this is happening in the time of judges when there is no king, everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And the, the challenge before us is Elimelech. He is this man who has a wife, and has a family, and we are told that in Israel there is a famine. Israel has, is in this period where they're not following Yahweh, and God has caused the harvest to dry up just like he promised. And Elimelech, with a wife and with, with two sons, He's faced with, what do I do? And we know throughout the history of the Old Testament that there were times where there was famine in the land. And sometimes God would would go to a family and say, well, there's food over here. Why don't you go there? But there are other times where God has not given instructions to leave the promised land to find food, and instead they are called to remain and they are called to trust God in that situation. Trust God by leaving and going to get the food where he has told them to go, or trust him by staying because he has not told them to go. There is nothing here indicating that Elimelech has received word from Yahweh that he should take his family outside of the promised land. And one of the reasons for that is because the people of God, as they went through these times of famine, the purpose was to call their hearts to return to him. 
Elimelech chooses to take his family outside of the promised land. And he goes and he does find food for his family. But notice how long they stay. It's not for a season. It's not for two seasons. It's not two or three harvests. They end up staying there a whole decade. They end up sending down roots into Moab. The sons marry Moabite wives. What the text is indicating to us is they are quite comfortable living outside the promised land and are choosing to set up camp in Moab and that they are not concerned about going back. Not going back would mean that they were cut off from the sacrificial system, from the work of the priests, from the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lamb. They are comfortable outside the promised land. They are looking for the benefits and blessings of earthly life outside of the promised land. The result is that even outside the promised land, you cannot escape the chastisement of the Lord. And Elimelech dies. The two sons die. Now here's here's what's interesting. We have no idea, zero idea of what Ruth's perspective was of all this. We don't know if she was like, well, yeah, let's go, Elimelech. We have no idea if she was like, yeah, Moab. We have no idea if she was like, Moabite women for my sons. This is awesome. She may have been like my mom. Oh, there's a woman that is willing to marry him. All right, let's bring her into the family. We have no idea what, what Ruth's perspective is on this. We don't know if she's participating in Elimelech's sin. We don't know if Elimelech's sin is being forced upon her. And that's really important here. Because when you work through the commentaries, everyone wants to work out this issue in order to, to, to try to, to guide the interpretation and application. But I think regardless of whether she was participating or whether it was happening to her, the result is the same. She has lost her husband. She has lost her sons. And the result is that she has lost her hope. She is without hope in this world. And she even says to her daughters-in-law, well, let's say that there was hope. And I, I do have a couple more sons that can come. Are you going to wait on them? She's made it clear. She's without hope. And we don't know if what she is talking about here is, is the result of, of just the, the earthly situation, that being a, an older woman living in this kind of society, whether it was Moab or whether it was Israel, she did not have the same protections that a married woman would have. 
She didn't have the same protections that a a widow with sons would have. And and this isn't about trying to set up as this an evil patriarchy or all that kind of stuff. It's it's as simple as if she had sons, she has someone to take care of her because Israel did not have social security. They didn't have a governmental system that provided levels of protection for people who were in need. That was the responsibility and the privilege of family. Families took care of families. Sons took care of their aging parents, whether male or female, but especially female. And, and the sons, sons would take care of them and go so on and so forth. This was the safety net. It was the family. She has no safety net. And the result here is she tells us she is without hope and she has become embittered. The name Naomi means pleasant one. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant one. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. She is hurt. She is fearful. Things have radically changed for her. And not only now is she without the perfection, the protection and provision of a husband and sons, she is without these things in a foreign land. But it is at this time that God brings word to her that hope has returned to Israel. I love the way the text says it, that she's out in the field. And somehow this rumor gets to her, oh, guess what? Harvest time has returned to the land. Harvest has come back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which was a, a little town that, that, was, that is, uh, its name means the, the house of bread. The irony is that the house of bread, the seeds that are needed to, to make bread, those seeds have dried up and they have disappeared, which has led to them not being able to make bread, which has led to famine. But the seeds have returned to Bethlehem. Bread has come back to the house of bread. And so she is at a crossroads. What do I do as one who is embittered against God, who, is, who, who feels like I am fearful and without hope in this world? And yet, in the promised land of my fathers, bread has returned. Because Yahweh has lifted his hand of judgment and is once again providing the gifts and blessings of his covenant faithfulness. His covenant faithfulness led to judgment. His covenant faithfulness has returned the blessing. She's at a crossroads. What am I going to do? Am I going to sulk? Am I going to give up 
Am I going to just fight really hard and try to change Moab and turn Moab into something that it's not designed to be? What is she going to do? She's at a crossroads. And beloved, you and I are at a very similar crossroads as Daniel so clearly articulated for us last week. Many are fearful. Many are struggling with the changes. Many are angry because of what is happening. Several are bitter right now. This, this isn't the way things were when I was a kid. And it is so easy to have these, these feelings and emotions of fear, anger, bitterness, at, at the result of what is clearly not a change for the good. But how, what are we going to do? Are we going to allow those things to take control of, of how we live within this world, or are we going to respond to the hope that God has provided through the seed that has come to Bethlehem? That is what is before us. We can either look to try to find satisfaction in the lesser bread of Moab, or we can look to find satisfaction in the bread that God has provided. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Will it be repentance and faith? You see, we have no idea right now, and I'm going to be clear on this, Nobody has any idea right now as to why these things are happening in America. And anyone who tells you they do know, run from them. We do not know if what is happening in America right now is the result of the church's sin and God has brought judgment on the country because of this. We have no idea if this is God responding to, to, the, to the, the more aggravated sins that have uh, been set before us in American culture as, as being good when they are evil. We, we do not know. And what we don't want to do is play the role of Job's friends and start saying things that we don't know about. Job was suffering. And Job suffered as one who lived within a system in which God had revealed in the law something that is called retributive justice. And so logically to them, for, for Job to be suffering, it has to be because he has sinned. But the reality is we know what they didn't know. He is suffering because he is being tested so that the genuineness of his faith will grow and sink deeper roots and be used more effectively for manifesting the realities of who God is and what God is doing. So we don't know. Just like we don't know if this is the result of Ruth participating in a limitless sin or if Ruth is just the victim of his sin, we don't know. But what we do know, is that God is a God of hope. And what he has promised to his people 
is bread. And not just any ordinary bread. He has promised a bread from heaven. The people of God ate this as they sojourned between their departure from Egypt and coming into the promised land. But there is a greater bread that was promised that is yet to come for Ruth who finds herself in this situation. And beloved, for you and for me, we know what that greater harvest is. We know what that greater uh, seed is that has come to Bethlehem. We know what that greater bread is that has come from the heavenlies, from the hand of God to nourish his people with that which is eternal. When we are finding ourselves trying to live in Moab as if Moab is the promised land. And so that is the decision that is before us. And that is what Advent provides to us. It is an opportunity to turn back to hope away from fear, away from bitterness, away from anger, away from apathy, and, it, and, and all of those things that come from living in Moab and looking for it to provide what can only come from Bethlehem. And so moments from now, we are going to meet with God not only through his powerful and eternal word, but through his very presence as he makes it known to us through the bread and through the cup that is on the table before us. Where the bread that was born, not just in Bethlehem, but in Bethlehem Ephratah. Because in God's sovereign purposes and through his sovereign protection, God is going to protect the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the seed that would be born in Bethlehem of Ephratah. Because a Moabite woman is going to exercise the repentance and faith that none of the Israelites are exhibiting here. Just like with what we saw in Jonah. It is the Gentile. It is Ruth, the compassionate friend, who makes a vow to Yahweh that she will stick with her mother-in-law and that her land will become hers, her people will become hers, her God will be hers. And through the, faith, the repentance and faith of a foreign woman will come the Redeemer that is born to Naomi. A Redeemer whose generations will lead to the King the king that is needed, the king that is coming. Beloved, we live in that time of decision when our king has come and is yet still coming. And so how will we live this Advent? What will we look to this Advent? 
What are we going to set our hope on this Advent? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your amazing, amazing love. Your inscrutable sovereignty. The mystery of how you have not just made promises, but fulfilled those promises through, through not just the big, massive things that we see in the incarnation of Jesus and in his crucifixion on the cross and in his glorious resurrection from the grave, but, but even, Lord, what we see in, in, in a rumor that there is bread that has returned, in, in the rumor that the, the seeds have come back, in, in the rumor that you are not yet done with your people. And through this simple act of repentance and faith in a Gentile woman whom you had had brought to that moment in time in order to save the lineage of our Savior Jesus Christ. And so fill us with the awe and with the hope of what you are revealing in Ruth that has come true in Jesus Christ and is yet coming in a fulfillment that is beyond our wildest imaginations as we look for his second coming. Until that time comes, Lord, give us the repentance and faith to trust you and to be willing to return to you to let go of the lesser things of Moab in order to hold tightly to the greater things of the promised land. Do this, we pray, not only for our own repentance and faith, but that you through us would draw many other roots out of Moab and into the promised land in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray.